Well, the face-off between Russia and the West over Ukraine escalated again today. Russian lawmakers earlier authorized President Putin to use military force outside his country, while U.S. President Joe Biden and European leaders, as well as Canadians, Canada's Prime Minister, responded by slapping sanctions on Russian oligarchs and banks. Putin's deployment of Russian troops into two rebel-held areas in southeastern Ukraine after recognizing them as independent. That happened yesterday. Now, Canada, the U.S., the U.K., and all 27 European Union member nations are ordering initial penalties targeting Russian officials over their actions in Ukraine. Meantime, Ukraine's Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuleba was in Washington today. He says the international community should support strong sanctions against Russia. The world must respond with all its economic might to punish Russia for the crimes it has already committed and ahead of the crimes it plans to commit. Hit Russia's economy now and hit it hard. Well, U.S. President Joe Biden had been listening, announcing sanctions of Russian financial institutions and oligarchs. Here's the president. I have authorized additional movements of U.S. forces and equipment already stationed in Europe to strengthen our Baltic allies, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. Let me be clear. These are totally defensive moves on our part. We have no intention of fighting Russia. We'll also impose sanctions on Russia's elites and their family members. They share in the corrupt gains of the Kremlin policies and should share in the pain as well. Joining me now is Catherine Stoner, a senior fellow at the Stanford University Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies and author of Russia Resurrected, Its Power and Purpose in a New Global Order. Thanks so much for being here tonight. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Um, I mean, this may be the most simplistic of questions, but I think it's the one that we keep mm -hmm. asking. What does Vladimir Putin want out of this? Yeah, well, that is the multi-billion dollar question, uh, of course. So I, I, I think he told us what he wanted. He, he uh, gave a, a long, fiery, bizarre um, uh, speech behind his desk in the Kremlin yesterday. Uh, it lasted about 58 minutes, and he gave us his version of Ukrainian Russian history, which I think about 44 million Ukrainians would strongly disagree with. Um, and um, his, his intention, as he states it, is to uh, roll back Ukrainian democracy, which he thinks is um, a transplant from the West. And he uh, has a litany of grievances uh, against uh, NATO, um, which is the wrong way to the, the, the wrong target of the grievances uh, since right. uh, NATO hasn't actually expanded on Russia's borders since 2004. How much of this, I mean, I spent time in Kiev, you know, when Viktor Yanukovych was disposed, or when he fled, at least. How much of this is, and I, we always had the sensation at the time that, that the Kremlin was keeping a very leery eye on what was unfolding in Ukraine, mm -hmm. because that was the second color revolution, essentially, second time they had overturned somebody. And that uh, the last thing that Vladimir Putin wants is something similar to happen in Russia, as, as unlikely as that may be, but that certainly Ukraine has been something that he views with a lot of suspicion. Right. Uh, and, and um, you know, this uh, for him, this whole issue is existential, uh, right, is uh, what what does he not want? He does not want uh, a pluralistic political system uh, with a free media and uh, increasingly independent judiciary um, and checks and balances on his border, um, especially in a country that um, is very familiar 
um, to Russia, um, although of course not exactly the same. And again, as I said, most Ukrainians would not share his version of Ukrainian Russian history. Um, it's an example, right? And the worst, the worst thing for an authoritarian leader is to have a success like that, um, a country that also sees its future not in the Russian model, but in uh, a European model um, of governance and democracy uh, on his borders. Because what if his own people say, why can't we have that? Um, and uh, that's the danger. So for him, as I said, it's, a, it's really existential and it's really not about NATO expansion. It's about the example of a democracy for a kleptocratic, personalistic, authoritarian leader. Uh, and that, that is Vladimir Putin. Which then begs the question, how do you prevent someone from going ahead and doing whatever it is they want when that's mm -hmm. there, when that's the motivation. Will to say, in other words, did you did you get any satisfaction or out of what you were hearing today from from world leaders? Um, I, I did actually, and I think there'd be a few things that he would be surprised about. He is kind, I think, kind of counted on um, European leaders, Canada, the United States, having some disagreement over sanctions and sanction regimes and how far they they'd go. And I would guess that it was a bit of a surprise to have the German Chancellor uh, stop the certification process, or at least pause it for the Nord Stream pipeline, given how expensive that was, and, and given how uh, much Germany is dependent, at the moment, at least on um, Russian natural gas supplies flowing into Germany. Um, the fact that Schultz said this quickly, and resolutely, um, I think, must have come as a surprise because it was not clear that that uh, Germany's what Germany's threshold was um, in terms of stopping uh, the certification of that project. I think the other encouraging thing here is that these are, um, you know, from Canada, from the United States, from Europe, these are some pretty serious sanctions that have potential to to hurt the Russian economy in a way that previous sanctions have not. Just for listeners who aren't familiar with the Nord Stream 2 project and, and Germany's sort of uh, vagueness about what was going to happen if and when and what, what the red line would be for them uh, by Vladimir Putin. Uh, I, I noticed that uh, Dmitry Medvedev, the former president uh, and, and prime minister, fired off a pretty nasty tweet to the Germans right after they announced this. So you <laughs> think maybe that maybe that did get under their skin. But what's the importance of Nord Stream 2 and what was the importance of having Germany seen to be on side with Western allies uh, today? Sure. So Nord Stream 2 is uh, a pipeline, a natural gas pipeline that runs from northern Russia above St. Petersburg under the Baltic Sea to northern Germany. And it is not yet operational. That is, no gas is flowing through it. Um, but it, 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 the reason for that is because Germany has uh, asked the Russian company that administers it to register as a German company, and then it would be certified uh, by Germany to, to begin accepting natural gas. So what they have, have done is stop the certification process. So gas hasn't flown, flowed through it yet. There is a Nord Stream 1 uh, alongside Nord Stream 2, and gas does flow through that. But the real significance here is that Nord Stream 2 is bad for Ukraine, which is why Canada and the United States have opposed the project. And at one point we had it under some sanctions um, and, um, you know, ultimately the, it was completed nonetheless. So why don't we like it? Well, um, 
and why have we been divided with uh, uh, over this with Germany? Um, well, because it's bad for Ukraine. You see, there's a network of pipelines um, that run through runs through Ukraine um, from Russia that carries natural gas, and the Ukrainian government gets uh, rent um, for the gas that flows through to Eastern mm -hmm. Europe. Um, and so, with Nord Stream two, uh, Russia's idea is basically, well, we'll stop having uh, uh, gas flow through those pipelines, and then we won't have to worry about paying the Ukrainians. Um, and so that's why it's bad for Ukraine. But here's the sort of significant and interesting thing about this with Germany um, decertifying the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. It may end up just being symbolic if in fact Russia takes over more of Ukraine than it already has, um, because it will, it will effectively establish ownership over the existing network of pipelines and wouldn't need Nord Stream 2. So we'll have to see what happens there. I'm speaking with Catherine Stoner, senior fellow at Stanford University's Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies and the author of Russia, Russia Resurrected, Its Power and Purpose in a New Global Order. That's what we've been talking about is Vladimir Putin's aims and goals here. And clearly, um, let's be honest, he's been the aggressor through all of this, through most of this or through all of this. So one always wonders what uh, what the end goal is. Do you, do you believe that there is, I mean, we've heard lots of different intelligence reports out of the US. Do you believe there's a legitimate fear of, of an all out war now in, in Ukraine? Do you think we'll see uh, what we saw in the Balkans in, in the late 90s? It is very hard to believe that there there would be. Um, but um, I, I think there are different scenarios short of that. Um, one is that they, they will sort of support these rump republics that now Russia has recognized as independent states that are provinces of Ukraine. Um, and the, the separatist governments that, that are backed by the Kremlin, that they'll help them to actually expand out of those um, regions in, to um, actually occupy a greater part of them, because they only occupy part of them now. And that, that could mean that they try to build some sort of kind of land bridge all the way down to Crimea, which Russia, of course, already occupies. Um, I would say right now that's kind of my optimistic scenario yeah, and, yeah, that yeah, they stop yeah. there um, and they don't go north to Kiev uh, or to Odessa. But I right. do think this this sort of strange um, speech that Putin gave yesterday, he, he took the trouble to mention, uh, you know, for example, Odessa, a beautiful city of over a million people on the Black Sea in, in Ukraine. Um, and how in the protests that took place there in, in 2014, um, there was a fire and some uh, people who were protesting in favor of Russia were killed. And in this speech yesterday, he, he mentioned Odessa specifically saying, those people who caused that fire and those deaths haven't been punished, but we will find you and we will punish you. Um, which worries me that the, that the goal is to to press uh, into the South uh, as well. And and um, so, you know, scenario two is they go much further uh, than just those uh, Southeastern republics. I'm speaking with Catherine Stoner, a senior fellow at Stanford University's Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies. Uh, when we come back, we'll look at what happens now, what, what other sanctions in this tit-for-tat game that the West and Russia are playing, what would the next move might look like? And are, is there enough dry powder left for more sanctions and what could those look like? We'll be back after this. 
I'm back with Catherine Stoner from Stanford University's Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies, author of Russia, Russia Resurrected. Uh, we were talking about uh, about developments today and sanctions announced by the West uh, against Vladimir Putin. Um, and I'm wondering, again, we talked a bit about Nord Stream 2, but what did you see in terms of the sanctions? The coordination was certainly uh, impressive, I found. Mm-hmm. But what did you see in terms of sanctions and what's left to do if this escalates? Sure. So, yes, they were very well coordinated. A couple of really interesting things. The Europeans um, and uh, the Brits uh, um, sanctioned um, about 350 members of the Russian Duma who voted in favor of recognizing these two territories of Ukraine as as independent um, countries. And apparently this will also mean that their families, wives and children can't travel to Europe and, and can't necessarily access all of their assets that they may have there. So that was interesting. That was new. Uh, we haven't seen that before. The U.S. did not do that. Um, to my knowledge, Canada has not done that. Um, the other uh, interesting things, I think, were in the U.S. case, sanctions uh, against um, two big Russian banks um, and then preventing them from uh, the Russian government from borrowing um, or trading debt on U.S. or uh, West European debt markets. That's significant, too, because that means Russian banks can't um, borrow, um, but it also hurts you know, Russia in terms of its sovereign debt. Um, it doesn't have a huge debt to GDP ratio. It's actually, you know, the, the economy is somewhat prepared for this um, and they have a lot of foreign reserves. But still, you know, this is a, sanctions are inherently blunt and they don't work instantly. But um, this could do some some damage uh, in, uh, you know, the next year or two to Russia's economy. Um, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to let you finish. Oh, I was going to say, in, in terms of what we have left to do, what, what else we could do? Um, well, there's a lot. Um, I, tomorrow, I think we're, we'll see more sanctions against uh, individuals around Putin in an effort to try to pressure him into at least stopping where they are, uh, where the Russian military is, as opposed to going further. Um, the other you know, things we can do are, uh, again, sanctioning more members of parliament, uh, ratcheting it up uh, over time, um, more members of the upper house. Um, and it does become an irritant uh, over time to the Russians, even if it doesn't completely cripple their economy. Um, it, it is irritating um, it, it, to, to not be able to access your assets, to not be able to, to travel um, abroad, especially into uh, Europe. Um, or to the United States, so that or Canada. This is all. This is all quite possible that that would happen. And then the final sort of nuclear option um, would be removing Russia from the SWIFT system, uh, which helps to settle bank transactions. And that's particularly problematic for Russia because um, um, a lot of its export revenue comes from oil sales. Um, and to settle those deals, you you actually it's very capital intensive. Um, and um, it inqu- requires moving money around quickly around the world. And so, so that would also be difficult. But Russia has you know, prepared for this and set up some guardrails um, to try to get around that, including you know, using things like cryptocurrency to, to make those payments instead. I only have about 90 seconds left, and this is a, another elaborate question, but you've watched mm-hmm. a lot of Vladimir Putin. When you watched him yesterday, mm-hmm. did you see anything different? 
Um, well, I wrote somewhere that it <laughs> kind of reminded me of my crazy uncle at Thanksgiving. <laughs> uh, in, in a way, um, yeah. the, in, the intensity uh, um, in the absurd statements that he was making, you know, you get the, you get the impression of what I think is, is you know, accurate. It's what we hear is that COVID, in a sense, has not been kind to him, just as it hasn't been kind to the rest of us. He's he's isolated himself. He has various residences outside of Moscow. Uh, he purportedly hasn't seen that many people, except uh, you know, uh, four other guys, uh, three of whom who are are, are uh, former intelligence agents, and one is the one is the minister of defense, but you know, the head of the foreign intelligence agency, the head of the Security Council, and the head of domestic intelligence, mm-hmm. and they are all about the same age and share the same kind of worldview. Um, and you know, um, you get the impression watching him that he's been sitting there stewing about this for a while. Um, and, and maybe that helps explain the timing a little. Catherine Stoner, thank you so much for your insight tonight. Thank you very much for having me.